Mrs. Tybrook, I suppose you've often wondered if innocent men ever had, and if guilty men are ever set free. But have you considered how delicate are the scales of justice, upon how little the balance sometimes depends, those cases in which up to the last moment the verdict of the jury is in doubt, and yet the difference between guilty and not guilty means life or death to the man who stands in the dock. On what does that difference depend? Apart from the obvious factors, of course. Does it depend upon the degree of counsel's conviction of his client's innocence? The ability of the prosecution of the defense? The attraction or aversion of the jury to the man in the dock? Or perhaps the judge's breakfast on the day of the trial? Let us consider the case of Robert Wood, the shabby genteel artist, as somebody called him. He was brought to the Old Bailey 40 years ago because of a little sketch he drew on a postcard. You know what doodling is, don't you? Most of us do it. I'm drawing one while I'm talking. We draw peculiar designs on a blotting pad. But Robert Wood, being an artist, drew much better doodles than you or I. In fact, some of them turned into actual sketches. Robert Wood was a super doodler. He doodled in the dock. It is noon on September the 12th, 1907. A Thursday. Bertram Shaw, a young railway cook who lives in Camden Town, London, is returning from night duty on the railway. He has just called on his mother, and with her, he is now proceeding to his flat at 29 St. Paul's Road. They don't speak very much, but his mother notices something odd in the young man's behavior. What's the matter, Bertie? Are you ready, child? You seem all on edge. You are, mother? Oh, come on now. You can't hide anything from your own mum. What is it, son? Well, I'm, I'm taking you back to my flat today for a special reason. I'm, I'm taking you to meet my fiancé. Your fiancé? Of course. But when did you get engaged? We, are, we only decided yesterday. Well, well, that is... Uh... Where is she? Have you known her long? Yes. Well, you see, her name's Emily Dimmock, and everybody calls her Phyllis. So she's at your flat now? Yes, and, 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 and please be nice to her when you meet her mother. She's had a hard time of it all her life, and she, she really is a sweetest girl. You, you'll see for yourself. Actually, Bertram Shaw and Phyllis Dimmock were known as Mr. and Mrs. Shaw in the rather disreputable neighborhood in which they lived. What the young man did not know was that his intended bride was taking advantage of his night work on the railway to live a very different life on her own. With his mother beside him, and anxious to get the occasion over and done with, young Shaw hurriedly entered his flat. There he was brought to a standstill. His beloved Phyllis was lying on the bed in a peaceful attitude of repose. But something was quite definitely wrong. You see, her head had been cut off. The idea, Inspector Neal here. Oh, yes, Doctor. Oh, yes, examine the body. Yeah, let me see. Well, what time would you say the murder took place? Well, three o'clock this morning. Yes, well, near enough anyway. Mm, sleep, was she? Yeah, right, right, Doctor. That's all for the moment. Right, thank you. Goodbye. Uh, Sim. Yes, sir? Uh, Sim. 
Take two men with you and question everyone you see around St. Paul's Road where this Timmock woman lived. She was known as Phyllis or Mrs. Shaw. Try the pubs in the district. She was that type. Yes, sir. And I want to know everything you can find out about her. But especially, I want to know her movements for the last four or five days. It shouldn't be difficult. She was well known in the neighborhood. Inspector Neal had practically nothing to work on. But late that afternoon, a ship's cook was brought in to see him. Ah, you knew the deceased? Yes. Well, I uh, passed three nights in her place. Sun, Mun, and Q. Sun, Mun. Oh, I, I see. Yes. And what about Wed? Uh, last night. Uh, now, I was with the bloke I shared with. I was following some devil from the clouds. Uh, we were in the Eagle. Oh, check that, will you see? Ah, you were at the Eagle last night, and you didn't see this woman. Oh, I've seen Phyllis. Yes, was she with anyone? Yes. Uh, young chap. I know his name. Seen him together before. As a matter of fact, at the Eagle and the Rising Sun. Hmm. What was the man like? Young, nice-looking in a way. Didn't look very strong. Sort of shabby genteel. Shabby genteel. Now, can you tell me at what time you saw them? Several people stated that they had seen this shabby genteel young man in the company of Phyllis Dimmock at various public houses during the past week. And it was finally established that he was with her as late as 11.30 on the night of the murder. But who was he? Where was he to be found? Inspector Neal returned to the scene of the crime, the flat at 29 St. Paul's Road. What he found there put him in a much better spirit. Uh, Sims, I've just been looking over the flat again, and I found this postcard behind the lining of a drawer. Evidently, it was the one the murderer was searching for when he ransacked the room. Oh, now I see it, sir. Yes. Phyllis, darling, if it pleases you, meet me at 8.15 at the... What's this drawing, sir? The uh, Japanese flag? Well, use your imagination, Sims. What's it look like? Oh, it's a sun, sir, isn't it? Well, what sort of sun? Oh, set in sun, I No, Sims, a rising sun. The name of the pub. Oh, I see, sir, yes. Meet me at 8.15 at the rising sun. Yours to a cinder honest. <laughs> well, at least we've got a name to go on. Oh, I had Alan business with some sort of good. Several of the cards we found were addressed in that handwriting, and this is the only one with a message on it. I believe these postcards were written by the murderer, and that he tried to find and destroy this particular postcard. I also think he has our shabby genteel friend. Oh, isn't that rather jumpy to conclusion, sir? No, well, look at the postmark on that card, then. The Sunday before the fatal wedding day. He must have received the card on Monday. The appointment was therefore for Monday night. We know from two witnesses that he was with our young friend at the Rising Sun on Monday night. If we don't jump to the conclusion that he wrote the postcard, we might as well give up the job. Uh, uh, yes, sir, of course, sir. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, how do you propose to take this uh, Rising Sun postcard and these three others and have them published in facsimile in every newspaper in the country? Then, Sims, we shall just have to sit back and wait. But what a long shot Inspector Neal was backing. How likely was it that anyone would recognize writing from a few words in a postcard reproduced in a newspaper? But Ruby Young did. Ruby Young, pale, delicate, with jet black hair and deep blue eyes. A refined, beautiful face that was a great asset in her work as artist model. Up to three months ago, she had been receiving countless letters from her loved one, an artist. These letters were long and flowery, interspersed with charming and witty little sketches. When Ruby Young saw the Rising Sun postcard in a Sunday paper, she immediately took up a pen and wrote to the man she loved, Robert Wood. My dear Bob, you came to me the other day and asked me if anyone questioned me 
I swear I always saw you on Mondays and Wednesdays. I agreed to say this, though we've hardly seen each other since our quarrel. In the papers today, there is a postcard from you to a woman who has been murdered. Oh, come in. Come Ruby, I'm in trouble. Yes, I know you are. That's your handwriting, isn't it? Be patient, darling, and I'll explain all to you. I've got to have an alibi for the Wednesday night. Some people saw me with her on the Monday at the Rising Sun. Just a moment, Bob. Were you with this woman on the night? She was nervous? No, Ruby. On Wednesday night, I was out walking alone, but I can't prove it. Did you write to her again after the Monday night? No, but I did a few drawings for her when we were in the pub. She might have kept those. What do you want me to do, Bob? I'll do anything I can to help you to be nervous. Don't seem to be worried, darling. I want you to say you were with me on the Wednesday night. Say we had dinner somewhere in Knightsbridge, but I left you at Brunton Monetary at 10.30. You went to Rose Court, I went to King's Cross. And you remember all that? Of course. Ruby remembered. In fact, she could think of little else. She became nervous, hating the idea of a conspiracy. And finally decided to go to the police, where she told her story to Inspector Neal. Ruby was asked to meet Robert Wood at a certain spot in the Grading Road. And there, on a windy afternoon in October, three weeks after the murder of Phyllis Dillon, the inspector waited for the man he firmly believed to be the murderer. A little way off, Ruby waited also. One can imagine her feelings as she watched her lover approach to keep the appointment she had made with him, knowing as she did that the kiss she was about to give him would deliver him into the hands of Scotland Yard. Robert Wood was arrested. He believed implicitly in Ruby. And 
with great confidence gave the inspector the alibi which the two had concocted. Unfortunately, as you know, Ruby Young had already told Inspector Neal the whole story. In any case, the alibi was disproved by the other witnesses. So you see, Sims, it all points to Wood. A, he's undoubtedly the writer of the postcard. B, he's given us a completely false statement. C, he has been identified by two people who saw him as Phyllis Dimmock on Monday night. And D, the ship's cook has identified Wood as the man with whom he saw her on the Wednesday night. Oh, they're all good points, sir, but surely not sufficient. Oh, I haven't finished, Sims. At this morning's identification parade, Wood was positively identified by a carman named McGowan. McGowan says he saw Wood at 5 a.m. on the morning of September the 12th. That's two hours after the murder. And where does this McGowan say he saw Wood at that hour? He says he saw him leaving number 29 St. Paul's Road, the house in which Phyllis Dimmock was found dead seven hours later. The police had done their job. All they found about Robert Wood pointed to his being responsible for the woman's death. The motive only was lacking. Robert Wood now sat in Brixton prison awaiting his trial. How do criminals fill those hours? Do they sleep? Do they read? Do they take their minds off their predicament? Do they write letters to their friends? Robert Wood drew pictures. The massive array of evidence against him seemed to worry him, not a jot. But Scotland Yard merely presents the facts without question. It presents the truth not necessarily the whole truth. That must come out in court. Take, for instance, one of the main items that the police gave the Crown by way of evidence against Wood. The common named McGowan stated that he saw a man leaving number 29 St. Paul's Road at five in the morning. He stated that the man was of stiff build with broad shoulders and that he wore a bowler hat and his coat collar was turned up. He later identified the prisoner Wood as the man he had seen, saying that he recognized him by the peculiar swing in his walk. So said the police and McGowan, and that was part of the evidence used by the prosecution in court. But what happened to this evidence when the defending counsel, Mr. Marshall Hall, cross-examined McGowan? How reliable was the man's memory? How much was his evidence worth? In your first statement, you said the weather was drizzly, right? But you saw the man clearly by the light of the street lamp. You also stated you remember the time was five because you heard a clock strike. Right. My lord, I have here the lighting chart from the Electric Light Company proving the street lamps in the Camden Town District were turned off on September the 12th at 4.37 a.m. Furthermore, I have proof that there was not one drop of rain recorded in the whole of London that morning. When you saw the man leaving the house, McGowan, did you know the house was number 29? Yeah, I read it in the paper. And yet you stated to the police that you saw him leave number 29. So, at the identification parade, you recognized the prisoner as the man by his peculiar walk. That's right, a kind of swing. And yet you mentioned nothing about it in your statement. Well, you see, when we go to make a statement, we're not surprised when we come to be cross-examined. Well, I wasn't a particular. You are not so fly. Do you mean to say that knowing this man's life might depend on your description, you did not take particular notice of what was read over to you? Have you no regard for human life? Oh, that's all right. 
Marshal Hall never did things by halves. Later on, he called a witness of his own, William Westcott, ticket collector. What King's time King's did you leave your house on September the 12th? Uh, about five minutes to five in the morning. And your house is number 26, St. Paul's Road. Yes. Did you see anyone that morning? Yes, uh, a man going in the opposite direction. Are you conscious that you have got a swing in your watch? Oh, yes, especially in the morning. They say it's good exercise and out with your chest. And please turn up your coat collar. Put on your bowler hat and walk up and down to the jury. Sure enough, there was a definite swing in the man's walk. From that moment on, McGowan's evidence was worthless. Another item presented to the Crown by the police was the statement of the ship's cook who had spent the three evenings previously to the murder with Phyllis Dimmock. He had seen Wood with Phyllis on the fatal Wednesday night, or so he said. Marshal Hall quickly found the weak link in the man's statement. You were in a great fright, were you not, when you heard of this murder? No, I was not. When you heard of it, did you realize that except for the murderer... I was next man to him, the next man to the prisoner. No, the next to the murderer, which is a very different thing, if you please. You realized your danger. It was a very unpleasant situation. Yes. Did you speak to a woman called May about the case? Yes. yes. Look up, man, look up. Look up and speak up. You're in a court of justice. Now, did this woman give you a description of the man whom she said was known as a friend of Dimmock? Yes. So that you could easily have picked out the prisoner from May's description of that man? I could? Yes. <laughs> I implore you not to laugh, madam. A man's life is at stake. It was certainly no laughing matter for the ship's cook, whose evidence and identification of wood had been completely discredited. He left the stand sweating from every pore. That night in prison, the young artist on trial for his life wrote to his brother. Dear Charles, my feelings were strange today, such that I cannot describe, though peaceful. Whispers of good cheer came from every direction. Little did I think that one day I should appear on the capital charge. To be tried for one's life is, I find, sufficient for the day, and I am very weary. I understand there are great odds to face that may end disastrously, but I will carry my head high. A strut was the false alibi that he had concocted with Ruby Young. But again, Marshal Hall maintained that if Wood was trying to make an alibi for the murder, he would not have made it for 10.30 when the murder was at 3 a.m. if he was guilty. He would have known what time the woman was killed. That's a very good point. When Robert Wood was finally called in for his defense, every eye in the court followed his walk to see if there was any peculiarity about it. Well, there wasn't. As he passed his father, he smiled gently and said, Here now, Dad. He gave his evidence badly, showing all his weaknesses, his vanity, his affectations, his love of the dramatic. But nevertheless, with a calmness and serenity which staggered the crowded court, his counsel commented on it in his final speech to the jury. Members of the jury, how could this gentle, amiable little artist have done this dreadful crime? His unruffled demeanor throughout the trial is based on an unruffled conscience. What is the evidence of murder? The only iota of evidence against the man is that of the carman, who has been shown to have a faulty memory. 
and Ruby Young, whose statement was invented out of the bed. A gross and indignant lie. You cannot hang a man on evidence such as that. I defy you to do it. I defy you. I do not merely ask for a verdict of not guilty. I demand. The prosecuting counsel described Wood as a cold-blooded murderer. And it seemed as if the presiding judge, Mr. Justice Grantham, was inclined to agree with the prosecution. The court, crowded with Wood's sympathizers, heard point after point right up against him in the summing up. It uh, must not be seen that uh, because no motive has been shown on the part of the prisoner, that therefore he must be not guilty. Uh, uh, there is no doubt that the dead woman was murdered by a man who was leading a double life. Gentlemen, the whole evidence seems to prove that the prisoner has been leading a double life. He says he is innocent, and yet keeps everything from the police and from his own brother. Fifty mounted police had been called in to deal with the huge crowd waiting outside the old bailey. A worried official leaned over to speak to Wood's solicitor, Mr. Newton. Uh, I don't know what will happen if the verdict goes against him. I don't think we can control the crowd. We'll have to. The judge is determined. I've never heard such evidence summing up. Look at that fellow, Woody. He's the only one who isn't the least excited. What's he writing? Good Lord. I do believe he's making a sketch of the judge. Yes, Robert Wood, having sketched most of the people in court, among whom were Lily Elsie, the original Mary Widow, Mrs. Birbaum Tree, wife of the famous actor, Paul Kane and Henry Irving, had now begun a caricature of the judge. Having seemingly condemned the prisoner, the judge paused and then resumed in a very different tone. If in my judgment, as strong as the suspicion is, I do not think the prosecution has brought the case home against him clearly enough. Although it is, of course, a matter for you and for you alone, gentlemen, it is my duty to point out to you that unless you find that the evidence is so much against him as to warrant a conviction, you must give him the benefit of the doubt. This amazing change of attitude has never been fully explained. Marshal Hall thought that the judge, seeing the jury obviously in Wood's favor, was trying to steal the glory due to him, the defending counsel. But this is a doubtful explanation. Certainly there was glory for Marshal Hall at 8.15 on that December night when the foreman of the jury spoke those miraculous words, not guilty. <laughs> the court about him was going wild. Mrs. Beerbohm Tree rushed from the building to the stage of His Majesty's Theatre and announced to a cheering audience the innocence of the popular artist. Women fainted with joy in the courtroom itself, and even one of the policemen was heard to shout, Hooray! But what of the young man whose neck had just been saved? What emotion was he showing? Elation? Triumph? Relief? No, none of these. There, among the cheering multitude, he was quietly finishing his sketch of the judge. Later, he wrote... 
After the verdict, the reaction cannot properly be conveyed in words. I was not relieved. I felt depressed. I received with a sort of fainting feeling in my stomach, though it did not outwardly affect my composure. I was overwhelmed with sadness. I believe I was the only person who did not rejoice at the result. A strange young man who was nearly condemned because he drew a sketch of the rising sun on a postcard. He might have been hanged had not Marshall Hall been there to defend him. And so the Camden Town murder remains one of those unsolved mysteries that from time to time trouble the conscience of Scotland Yard. now, but I'll be back again soon to tell you some more of the secrets of Scotland Yard. Meanwhile, this is Clive Brooks saying goodbye and pleasant dreams. Thank you.